Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic. Did you think the guests were charitable? Did you have your mind changed? Find us at Principle of Charity on all platforms and be part of the discussion. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Emil, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is... Is it okay for storytellers to appropriate stories and characters from other cultures? Now, this is not an abstract topic for me, Lloyd. It's highly personal. I run a film and television production company, so this question is very live in my daily life. It's something I've thought and read a lot about. It's actually hugely complicated with a lot of issues that too often get mashed in together. Now, up until not that long ago, storytellers, whether novelists, screenwriters, directors, playwrights, or any other form, really, were encouraged to flex their creative muscles, to look outside themselves and armed with their imagination, inspiration, as well as uh, hopefully a lot of research to bring to life characters, stories, and worlds that they didn't inhabit themselves, sometimes worlds that are vastly different to the culture they've grown up in. Now, this act of creative imagination is, when done well, and that's obviously a big caveat, fueled by the profound empathy It takes to breathe life into characters often entirely different from oneself. And this is what has gotten so many storytellers up each morning, that drive to enter into the world of the other. But relatively recently, storytellers have received a huge challenge from many artists and thinkers on the progressive left, a challenge that has now permeated the creative arts. It suggests that entering into other cultures, particularly marginalised ones, And telling stories of their people, drawing on the well of their cultural reservoir, is akin to an act of theft. Now, the critique goes further than the theft, though. It's broad-ranging and includes other challenges, such as if you're from a dominant culture and you're telling stories of people that your culture has historically colonised or oppressed, then you are effectively compounding the oppression, as you are once again taking their voices, silencing them, and imposing your narrative on theirs. Now, there's a question of authenticity as well, which says that you, the writer, are not from their culture. You do not have their lived experience and can never truly represent them, except in an inauthentic and often demeaning way. That is, no matter how much research you do, you'll at best create a pale imitation of an authentically voiced story. And at worst, you'll create two-dimensional, dangerously cliched, even racist caricatures. So, Even though I work in this industry, or maybe because of it, I find all of this 
actually quite confusing. There are there are issues of creativity, of aesthetic merit, of theft, of caricatures, of power and colonization, all competing to control the narrative of who has the right to tell stories, or whether in fact that's even a sensical question to begin with. Now, I'm so excited to have two expert guests here to join us, Lloyd, to unpack um, all of these issues and hopefully to shed some light. Who are they? Emil, our two guests today are Daniel Browning and James O. Young. Let me start and tell you a little about Daniel first. Daniel is an Aboriginal journalist, radio broadcaster, sound artist, and writer. Currently, Daniel presents The Art Show on Radio National and is the ABC's editor of Indigenous Radio. He is also a former guest editor of Artlink Indigenous, a contemporary arts journal. Our other guest today, James O. Young, is a professor of philosophy at the University of Victoria in Canada. James specializes in philosophical issues related to the arts and has written several books, including Cultural Appropriation of the Arts. James was elected to the Royal Society of Canada in 2015. Emil, I think what we're going to get from this conversation and here is that both guests share a great sensitivity to culture, to forms of oppression and to the power of storytelling. But they've come to very different views about cultural appropriation of stories. Daniel is an Indigenous Australian with incredibly articulate views about the dangers of appropriation, whereas James is one of the few academic philosophers to write deeply about the topic. And it's great to have someone with that lens break apart the issues surrounding appropriation. And on that note, Emil, let's bring on the guests. Thank you both so much for joining us, uh, Daniel and James. Daniel, why don't we start with you? Why do you think it's wrong to appropriate stories and characters from other cultures, particularly marginalised cultures? Well, cultural appropriation for me, and this is how I define it, is about a question of power and about imbalance, and particularly in relation to storytelling. Who is telling those stories? Who has the power, the access uh, to kind of economic structures like publishing, um, and playwriting or staging plays, uh, those people by and large are not those marginalised groups. So when I sometimes see Aboriginal characters, and that's my context, presented on stage or in film um, by non-Indigenous creatives, um, parts written for Aboriginal characters, I always wince because I think, what, what, why isn't a black person telling this story? James, if we could go to you now. Could you take us through your arguments as to why it's okay to appropriate stories and characters from other cultures? I'm not saying that it's always okay. I can imagine circumstances in which certain kinds of cultural appropriation are wrong. But I think that we need to be able to identify a concrete harm or a serious offense that's being caused by cultural appropriation before it can count as wrong. Now, I I acknowledge that there are problems with uh, uh, minority groups frequently not being able to um, speak in their own voices and tell their own stories. But please, don't blame the artists. Blame the publishers. Blame the broadcasters. Those are the real uh, demons here. These are the real uh, uh, villains here. They're the ones 
who are uh, shutting out, if indeed they are shutting out, uh, certain people from speaking. Uh, don't uh, blame artists who want to come along and retell a story. Uh, one of the things that I really want to stress here is that stories are always being borrowed. Artists have always borrowed from other artists across cultures and within cultures. And until recently, this simply hasn't been an issue. Um, and I think that an artificial problem has been created here. Thanks, James. Daniel, you talked about issues of power, cultural appropriation being problematic when there are power imbalances. In our earlier conversation, you talked about colonization as a landscape within which it's problematic to appropriate, obviously, other forms of oppression. But one can also appropriate, you know, from a less, a less dominant culture to a more dominant or just within cultures that maybe have not much to do with each other. How do you see the broader range of cultural appropriation and, and why do you think it's okay to appropriate in a broader sense? Well, I don't think cultural appropriation is inherently in and of itself always bad. I go back to those original points about access to power, about harm. I think cultural appropriation really hits when you're talking about some of the most disadvantaged communities in the world and in relation to uh, here in Australia to in the Aboriginal context, you are talking about some of the most disadvantaged people in the world and not being able to tell our stories in our own voices um, or feeling inhibited by that is, is, is at the crux of that. It's okay to say, you know, publishers and broadcasters are the ones who, who are causing the harm here. But if an artist didn't kind of strike up and say, I'm going to create an Aboriginal character and I'm going to put this kind of language in his mouth, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I think there are many cases um, where, you know, non-Indigenous writers represent uh, the stories, um, the history of Australia. And I'm talking in, in the Australian context here, sorry, James. It could be easily be transposed anywhere in the world. Uh, we're talking about these power um, imbalances. And when I see those characters, I, as I say, I wince and I think, well, you know, wh why, why is this happening? And why is everything um, available? Why is everything somehow just fair game in the execution of story? And I just don't agree that in that we can position ourselves as people who are authorised to tell stories. In, in he, here we talk about this question of cultural authority. I wouldn't even deem to want to tell the story of another Aboriginal person. Um, I was just talking to a publisher today about, you know, this question of why there's, why there's so little Aboriginal biography. Well, the reason is because we have a sense of there's an unspoken protocol about what you, how you can engage with the life of another person. Um, and that's understood between Aboriginal people. We clearly have a sense of, no, I've, I've crossed a line here. I can't do this. Because of the perceived harm it, it may cause, um, but because I just don't have the authority to tell this story as it needs to be told. And, and you, I mean, it seems like we would all agree, and certainly both of you guys would agree, that we need marginalised voices to have greater access to the platform, to greater access to telling their stories. That is a absolute common ground. The sort of next level question is, does it necessarily follow, Daniel, that 
other people shouldn't have the ability to tell stories set in marginalized cultures or with marginalized characters. Do we need that next level of of, of prohibition? We don't even we don't even talk in terms of prohibition because, like, this is not a this is this is not a crime. Not, no one's going to prosecute this in a law in a court of law. <laughs> you know, discouragement is, is. Do we need the next level of discouragement? Emil, we- people will do it anyway, and it's always happened, as James quite correctly points out. This is kind of. I wouldn't even call it an exchange because when we're talking about power, Aboriginal people haven't been writing the stories of white people. So there hasn't always been exchange. You talk about this free flow of ideas. Well, well, no, Aboriginal people didn't have that kind of access to power, but to should courts they, of law. Should they, should they be free to, to, to tell all stories? Absolutely they should. But we would, we would tend to talk about experiences that we've had ourselves. We're not at a point in Australian history, or I, I think in, in many global cultures, where, where that, there is a free exchange. We, we live in a dominant culture which is uh, predicated upon Western ideas and Western beliefs, and that's just a fact. At, at a point in which there is exchange, if we were fortunate enough to get to that point, would you feel like cultural appropriation could be open to accommodate that? Or there's something inherent in the act of sort of um, appropriating and entering into the world of the other, which is problematic, a form of theft in and of itself? At this point in history, yes, I would say that that is absolutely correct, that we can't go there because we haven't reached that kind of common ground yet. Um, right. And I would say that's probably true in Canada. I would, I would assume in the United States, in other, in other Indigenous uh, settler colonial societies where we haven't quite reached that moment, where there is the capacity, the possibility of true exchange. And what about with cultures, Daniel, that m- maybe have had the opportunity? I'm thinking, say, a Croatian writer wants to tell a story set in Venezuela. I'm just making up these countries because they're countries I know the least about. You know, or a, a French person or a Japanese person wants to write a story that's set in Indigenous Australia, or an Italian Australian wants to tell a story that draws on Japanese culture and history. I understand your views about the Indigenous voices who've been particularly excluded and isolated, but thinking more broadly about cultural appropriation and just different cultures, which may have power dynamics in there in some form, but maybe not as overtly. Is, is it problematic? Is, is, it, is, it, is it an act of theft in a sense? It, it's always specific. It's always context-based for me. This question of appropriation has to do with um, power. For me, it's absolutely critical. If there's no harm, appropriation can happen, then there, there's no one to kind of disagree with it. So I'm talking about those specific examples where there are people who are harmed by appropriation. We can't talk about it in general terms because there, there, there may be no harm that arises from appropriation, in which case, well, what are, we, what are we arguing about? If no one's harmed by it, then to me it is appropriation, but is it cultural appropriation? And if there's, no, if there's, if there's mutual benefit and society's enriched and global culture is enriched, I don't have a problem with it. I'm only talking about it in the in relation to the to power dynamics, and to the idea that cultural appropriation, which I believe, uh, is where it perpetuates colonialism, and in the Australian context, you can see that happening almost on the daily. It's uh, you know, and and that's where I just I wish I wish art art obviously precedes culture in many ways. What happens in the artistic realm comes ahead of. Uh, the political, yeah? 
And that's that's where we that's a space where we collectively imagine the world as we would like it to be, or we remember the past. Those those those, those excursions into imagination are, are profoundly important. They enrich global culture, but without without a sense of harm and a, a sense of the a power imbalance, for me, a cultural appropriation in and of itself isn't bad. It's 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 something to sometimes, in some cases, to celebrate. Well, James. I think it's a nice moment to move to you and just to look at this idea of harm because in your book uh, you you try to dissect or you dissect the effect of appropriating. You might be taking something but you might not be depriving another culture of something. Can you just explain your concept of harm and why you don't think appropriation within the realm of a power dynamic might actually even be harming the culture? So philosophers usually define define the concept of harm as a setback to one's interests. That is to say, you've harmed someone if you prevent them in some way from pursuing their life projects. So if I whack you on the knee with a cricket bat and set back your interests of going on dancing with the stars, I've harmed you. Or if I break into your house and steal your butterfly collection, I've set back your interest of um, uh, being uh, assembling a, a world-class collection of Lepidoptera. So the, I've, I've set back your interests in some ways. And I, I, I find it difficult in many cases of cultural appropriation to identify the setback to a culture's interests that's um, supposedly being done by cultural appropriation. There, there can be some cases, I acknowledge. Um, and I think uh, that, uh, um, you know, we, we've seen uh, allusions to some of them. I think that a culture can be misrepresented by a member of an outside group. And that a misrepresentation of a culture uh, can perpetuate harmful stereotypes. But I don't think it has to happen. I don't think it always happens. And... Uh, I think also that it's very important for us to distinguish harm from offense. I don't think harm is the only way in which uh, something can be wrong, or in particular that cultural appropriation can be wrong. Sometimes uh, something is merely offensive, and usually offense is defined as, as a, a temporary unpleasant state of mind that doesn't prevent you from pursuing your life's projects. I, I think that sometimes offense can be so bad that it nevertheless can be wrong. And uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, I think that uh, the misuse, the cultural appropriation and misuse of sacred stories uh, can be one such example. That you don't actually, you don't harm people. You're not preventing them from living their lives as they choose, but you've done something that is a kind of affront to their core values and beliefs. You've made them consequently feel very uncomfortable. And I really think that that's something, it shouldn't be illegal, as, as was pointed out, but it's, it is, it's something that's morally objectionable. And so you've got to be really careful when you do that sort of thing. So that's, that's an example of the kind of cultural appropriation that I think can be morally objectionable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But James... You know, just to your point about theft and what the actual harm is, 
you're implying that if if someone from a dominant culture appropriated stories and characters from a marginalized one, the marginalized writers and storytellers can themselves write their own, assuming they that they've been supported and that uh, you know um, the, the broadcasters and, and and production houses support them. They are able to still their story hasn't physically been taken. They are able to still make stories based on. Um, their own culture. And so in a sense, they haven't been set back. I'm wondering, I mean, I, I can see the logic in that philosophically, but to some of Daniel's points, doesn't it mean that dominant cultures in a sense get to speak once again for marginalized cultures to control their narratives? And, you know, the structural realities in the arts industries might mean that they they get crowded out by more dominant storytellers. Do you, how, how do you factor in the sort of structural realities and power dynamics of the industry? Yeah. So, yeah, there are, there are power dynamics. I'm, I'm not denying that there are oppressed groups within both our Australian and Canadian cultures, and primarily uh, these are Indigenous groups. But there's simply no evidence, I think, no historical evidence that suggests that people want to hear outsiders tell the stories of insiders. Indeed, on the contrary, uh, there's plenty of historical incidences where people have been introduced to the the stories of Indigenous cultures by outsiders, and then they want to hear the real thing. I mean, I know we're focused here primarily on stories, but there is zero market in Australia for Indigenous art by white people. I mean, with indigenous style art by white people. People don't want to buy it. They want to have the real thing. They want to have paintings and so on that are produced by indigenous people. That is what's valued. Mm-hmm. They want to let the indigenous people speak for themselves. And they simply need it to be introduced to the existence of that art. In some cases, it was introduced to them by outsiders for them to want to have the real thing. I mean, a great example, once again, not a storytelling example, but a great example is Paul Simon's appropriation of South African township music in his album, Graceland. He opened up enormous opportunities for uh, South African musicians. Uh, you would never probably have heard of Ladyship Black Mabazo if it hadn't been for um, Paul Simon. He appropriated the music. People thought, oh, there's some great stuff here. Let's go hear the real stuff now. And I think that that's something that has very often happened in artistic yeah, history. Yeah. Well, that was, you've sort of answered my next question, which was about when can it actually be a force for good to sort of shine a light? I mean, sometimes you can be shining a light on injustice as an outsider, and then it can pave the way. I mean, I was going to ask you, Daniel, and this is a, a bit of a personal example, is because I was peripherally involved in the film Rabbit Proof Fence, which for people who don't know, is an Australian film made in 2002, based on the true story of three young Indigenous girls who were were forcibly taken from their family and put into a mission as so many young Indigenous uh, people were during the Stolen Generations. And it's the story of them escaping and walking 2,500 kilometres home across the Australian desert to their mother. And it was the book was written by one of the girls, but the script was written by a white Australian. It was directed by Philip Noyce, one of Australia's greatest directors, who has an Anglo background, to my knowledge, and produced by non-Indigenous producers. But Philip's prestige as a director allowed the film to be made at a decent, strong budget level, brought in the actor Kenneth Branagh, and he actually just really made a great film, which is really a hard thing to pull off, um, speaking from experience. And it became a milestone moment in Australia and worldwide, shining a light on stolen generations and arguably opening up a market and audience for Indigenous voices to tell their stories. 
How do you think about a film? How do you think about a film like this, Daniel? Uh, should it have been done that way? Um, and and don't worry about offending me. You know, like how, how would you assess a film and the structures of that film in today's context? Without getting too specific, I mean, I, I know people who worked on the film uh, and you know work with the cast of non-actors, the young young cast. Look, I think we would do it differently today. I, I don't deny it. It opened a window onto a very dark history. The point I would come back to is that when when whitefellas, as we call them, tell these stories, there's instant instant cachet. Um, there's a there's an appeal to a kind of storytelling that the general audience, um, that is other whitefellas, the people who are going to buy a movie ticket um, or go and see a film like this, um, understand. Um, if if you go back to the source of the story, and that is Doris Pilkington's uh, memoir, um, I think it was called Caprice's Daughter, and then it was it became Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence, and then the Rabbit Proof Fence is what it was in, on on the film. Um, without that primary source material, Philip Noyce wouldn't have had a film to make. Kenneth Branagh wouldn't have been able to act in, uh, come to Australia and and, and act the part of A.O. Neville, the uh, the administrator. The, the Mr. Devil in the film. Um, so without that, uh, it would have been, it, it came from a good place, right? It came from the original storytelling by a black person who'd experienced this. Without that, um, it would have been a much, uh, a film that you wouldn't, wouldn't under, you wouldn't undertake. But there have been other examples where that has not been the case. I think The Rat Proof Fence is a really good example because it talks about cross-cultural collaboration and, 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 and how, you know, we are all enriched by this story being told. Um, and I wouldn't disagree that it's a very good example, but there are other examples which aren't as good and don't have, don't come from a source uh, uh, within the culture. I'm interested in the link between authenticity and aesthetic value. You know, can you create an authentic work if you're not from the culture, that if, you're, if you're not an insider? But what is also the value of authenticity? Does a work need to be authentic to be creatively of value? Well, uh, so, no, I don't think that outsiders can create authentic works. If, because in this context, the word authentic simply means something like produced by members of the culture um, in which the story originates. But I don't think that authenticity is, or lack of authenticity is always an aesthetic flaw. Conrad wasn't a native of the Belgian Congo, but I don't think you want to say that Heart of Darkness is a failure as an aesthetic work. Shakespeare wasn't from um, um, Mantua, <laughs> uh, but he could write pl plays about Italy that are aesthetic triumphs. So, you know, it's not necessary to be authentic, to be aesthetically um, uh, successful. That said, and I alluded to this earlier on, there is a danger. Outsiders are unaware of certain nuances of a culture, um, and they can misrepresent it. And if they're the ones that have a voice, if they're the ones that have access to funding for their projects, say, there is a danger that people will, be, will begin to see a minority culture through the eyes of a majority culture. Mm. Yeah. That yeah. is a danger. I don't mm, think that yeah. it's 
I don't think that it's necessary that that's going to happen, but I think that that's something that we have to be aware of as a possible danger. Yeah. And I think that leads to a question of research, because that is one of the ways in which one can reduce uh, misrepresentation. Daniel, you know, one of the key issues with cultural appropriation, as we talked about, that outsiders don't have the lived experience of insiders. You know, when they write about a culture they haven't grown up in, they they can misrepresent it, as James says. It can Mm -hmm. be very harmful. Characters can be cliched, demeaning, even racist depictions. Mm. And a lot of people can see the work if they are a writer who's a popular writer. But what is the role of research in all of this? Can a storyteller do enough research and have enough talent or sensitivity or imagination to create a great work set in a culture that they're not part of? And if they did that, would that alleviate your concerns about cultural appropriation? If you appropriate from a culture in whom you've invested time and respect and dialogue, I think there are there are ways to respectfully engage with indigenous cultures and all all cultures to to mm. kind of del- deep, dive deep. Look, there, there's a friend of mine who was his who's long since passed away. He was Japanese and he was an anthropologist and he was a dear friend. And he went into um, remote communities in the Northern Territory and produced an extraordinary book. Um, about his journey uh, as a Japanese man into understanding this Gurindji culture, so from mm. from um, the the Northern Territory, and I would never say don't attempt that work because that creates right. incredible bridges. The work was translated, I think, into Japanese. You know, is an amazing story told from a Japanese perspective about someone entering another culture. And trying to understand and, and exploring the complexity and the richness and the diversity of that culture in relation to his own. Um, a profoundly moving like- book about, you know, about, about, about this whole experience of telling the story responsibly about engaging and about researching mm. and really sitting down. In, in Blackfellow culture, it's really sitting down with people. It's like you may not get your story, but you sit here for two days while we do this, and I'll slowly let you in. I'll slowly introduce these themes. I'll slowly introduce. You're not going to get something on the first day. It might take weeks or months. And that's the just, there's a real research, shortage. There's it? a real shortage of people who are willing to do that. They're they're yeah. they're quite quick to write an Aboriginal character and yet not. And, and then say, on the other hand, oh, I've never met an Aboriginal person or, oh, the Aboriginal people I've met, you know, they weren't like my characters or I've got Aboriginal friends. Well, it, it, spend more time with it, like really engage with it. So research in a deeper sense is is a potential salve if it's done in the right spirit. Can I, can I just jump in here with one example of somebody who did do the research? I'm not sure it's one that's familiar to you, but there's an American mystery writer named uh, Tony Hillerman who wrote a, a long series of uh, murder mysteries, mystery novels, set among the Navajo of the American Southwest. The Navajo thought these were fabulous novels. And in fact, they gave him an award, a special award, a uh, friend of the Navajo people, because they they thought that this was a well-researched uh, series of novels that had presented uh, their culture in an accurate way. They didn't have a problem with it. It was cultural yeah. appropriation, yeah. but they didn't have a problem with it because he had done the work. And this is one of the arguments used with pe- for, uh, amongst people who, who have issues around this, that, you know, 
writers and storytellers get up every day trying to imagine other worlds, other lives. And at best, it's a profound act of not just creativity, but empathy. And taken to the extreme, if you can't appropriate or draw on stories or characters or experiences that you haven't been part of, including marginalized from marginalized cultures, the endpoint becomes a sort of memoir in the way that you're saying, you know, Indigenous people wouldn't dream of telling stories of people that sit outside their experience. And even that Japanese um, uh, friend you alluded to sounds like he wrote a story very much rooted in his experience of being there rather than a researched story that jumps in the first person into um, the experience of, of, of an Indigenous culture. But because a storyteller is always, in a sense, appropriating, drawing on and imagining lives they haven't lived and building word, worlds through research and imagination, I guess I'm wondering, even if it is a form of theft, is the cure potentially worse than the poison, you know, to be left in a world that might discourage acts of creative empathy, which 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 lie at the heart of writing lives that aren't our own? Well, of course, I would, I would agree that I don't want to um, inhibit or... Um, discourage anyone from understanding another culture? Absolutely not. If, if your work is about exploring that culture and you do the research and you show... So is it about better appropriation? Is that what we're talking about? We, we want... How about respect? How about respect and dialogue, engagement, you know, with those cultures? Immerse yourself, as my Japanese uh, friend did in his... in attempting to kind of tell... That story. Don't become part of the culture because you can't. But you know, really spend time uh, with those people. And but what I'm, but I guess the issue though, Emil, is that artists often don't. They they, they don't want to do that, or they're just like, oh no, I can imagine this. I know what this is like. I've I've seen it. I've seen it somewhere. Or I. In which case, they're just screens for every other kind of representation of, say, blackfellas. So they can't they can't d- d- discern between what is a what is an assumed idea about Aboriginality or Aboriginal people from um, what they observe. You know, we are all screens, and things reflect through us, and we all have you know stereotypes. We all have ideas about the world that aren't correct. But to engage in but to engage in in, in, in to write a book or to create an artwork. I'm very interested in kind of cultural appropriation in the visual arts, actually. Um, to, to sit down and do that is an, is an act, yeah? So um, you have to think about what are the consequences here? Who, who might be affected by what I'm doing? And I, I just don't think a lot of artists, some artists, I won't say a lot, I just say some artists don't, uh, don't even stop at that point. They just continue on. When it gets to the cinema and when it gets to the to the stage, that's where people go. Hey, man, this is re- this is completely wrong. What you did here, this guy is not authentic. It's not even a, a an accurate representation of how blackfellas speak. A real really good example in the visual context is uh, Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein. This famous image of Gertrude Stein in a wearing black, you know, in a studio, and her her face is incredibly mask like. She wears the mask of every African uh, mask that Picasso had observed at that time in his career. Without seeing those masks, he, he could not have produced that image of Gertrude Stein. He went on to appropriate, you know, um, badly. 
Uh, there's a famous image of him, of image of Picasso wearing a, a, a war bonnet, a ceremonial Native American war bonnet. Um, this was a man who who continued to appropriate in his in his life and did so with gay abandon. Um, but the image of Gertrude Stein is an extraordinary image. It, it but it, it part of its story is it could not have been it could not have been possible without Picasso observing and appreciating and admiring uh, those African masks. Those things were appropriated. Those things were stolen. That's where we talk about theft, the actual theft of uh, appropriation. The superlative form of appropriation is land theft, is stealing a continent. So you take everything, you take every little bit of them, you take all of their culture. That's what appropriation is for me. It becomes this thing, oh, well, everything's gone anyway, so let's just take their culture because we're allowed to. James, for so long, the political left in particular has championed a sort of unfettered creativity. In fact, the more radical the creative act has been, the more of a challenge to oppressive power structures who've historically been the ones to try and censor and limit creativity. But more recently, with this conversation and what's been happening over the last number of years, through this push against cultural appropriation, the progressive left has put this big challenge to the ideal to the ideal of unfettered creativity, saying it can perpetuate this legacy of colonization that Daniel's talking about, sexism as well, and other forms of oppression. That the question of who has the right and access to tell their story sits within the whole matrix of economic political forces, and that dominant voices can't just take what they want to feed their creative voices in their pockets. How do you see this challenge to this ideal of creativity? And are you, do, 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 you, do you find it convincing? Well, I, I'm deeply, deeply troubled as a man who sits, sits on the left by the fact that it is today people on the left who frequently are the ones who are intolerant of certain kinds of, of, of creativity. And I really think that what has happened is that this is just one instance of the so-called culture wars. And these culture wars have been cynically used by um, our corporate masters and our neoliberal overlords to divide people against each other. The real issue is, as, as Daniel says, that continents have been stolen, but not only that, whole classes of people, not all of the members of minorities are being oppressed. And these culture wars over things like cultural appropriation are being used as the shiny object that distracts people from these really important issues. I mean, in the United States and Canada, too, to a lesser extent, people are being shot in the streets for the crime of walking around while black, and we're talking about hoop earrings? Really? This is not a serious debate at some level, right? The serious debate is how do we end the oppression of um, the people who are oppressed, not all of them members of minority groups. And my considered opinion is that cultural appropriation is doing almost none of the oppressing. It is being blamed for the oppression to distract people from the real sources of the oppression. Daniel, just looking at the sort of insider-outsider question within cultural appropriation, that, you know, the, 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 the issues around appropriation seem to stem from this distinction between those inside 
who have lived it, who've got the rights to it, and those outside who don't. But I'm wondering about your thoughts on the outsider perspective or the outsider voice, whether that can actually at times be a positive voice. Now, force. I'm, I'm not talking here about fraud, and I think we've all, you know, just to be clear to the listeners, we're talking, it's never okay to pretend to be someone you're not, to pretend to be an insider if you're an outsider. But if you acknowledge your outsider status as a writer or storyteller, you know, often outsiders have a vantage point to be able to see things that insiders might uh, find hard to see. Can an outsider sometimes tell a more interesting or insightful story than an insider? Uh, It's one one of the most interesting points, I think, in this conversation is there is a there is a point at which the outsider um, can tell a really instructive story, um, can educate, um, can particularly if they're talking to the dominant culture, they can go into um, a remote community, for example, and really explore the history of that place and tell a respectful story in dialogue with that community. You know, there's absolutely really good examples of where that's happened in the past. Um, mm, and mm. It, it, it absolutely, the outsider is capable of a kind of objectivity uh, that perhaps within that culture it may be hard to uh, replicate. So I would absolutely agree that there is a sense that sometimes the outsider's voice is one that we need to hear. But I would say in in terms of that's where you can get, if those are the only stories, if those are the only uh, interpretations or perspectives that we hear, and that's what we're talking about here in relation to um, storytelling and, and cultural appropriation in Australia, is that, and I would, I would assume too, in, in, in other settler colonial societies, I think there's really good examples of where that only story that comes out is one that is filtered by a non-Indigenous person, a person who went in there and told a great yarn um, that community didn't benefit or may have been harmed by their representation. And, you know, cultural appropriation is also, we're also talking here about rep- issues of representation. Who sure. gets to tell the story? So when when it's the only story that you know or the only story that you hear and it misrepresents that culture, I have concerns with it. But there are some really good examples of objective storytelling um, which have benefited us all and have enriched, and, and James talked about this, in relation to that, to that, to, to the the Navajo uh, example, you know, but I'm sure there are Navajo people alive who'd go, well, no, that doesn't really tell that story, or I maybe, you know, there's no kind of, there's no one cultural authority that will go, he did a really good job, he really represented mm-hmm. the culture as it is. There's always going to be dissenting voices. There's always going to be someone saying, well, no, he didn't. Margaret Mead is a really good example, going into Samoa and telling stories about, you know, sacred material sacred cultural business, secret cultural business, and being pilloried for it, you know. Um, so you don't want to be the Margaret Meads of the world, you know. You want, to, you want to go in there and you want to tell true stories. Don't make up fictions. Tell an honest story. And, but there are many good examples of that, of objective storytelling. There's a lot of agreement here, more than I actually imagined. That we, all, <laughs> we all want to I agree. be in a world where... Um, marginalized voices have the microphone. Uh, can I much just more say so. though? Can I just say though to, to James's point about this cultural appropriation being the shiny object um, that doesn't that distracts us from the real power imbalances mm. and the actual loss of life, the crime for being black, you know, being killed for being black. Um, that is also writ large 
in in most settler colonial societies, you know, the burden on on our communities of premature death, of violence, um, of substance abuse, there's a whole range of things. Uh, what what a former prime minister used to describe as lifestyle choices. Um, so do you think it can be distracting? The culture I, I don't, but I, I don't yeah. agree it as a shiny object. I, I, I think it is a way of understanding those broader systemic issues. It might, it might not be, it, it might be the one thing that a young person sees and goes, oh, Miley Cyrus was twerking or someone wore hoop earrings or one of the Kardashians had cornrows. Um, by having that debate, by having that dialogue about like what is ours and what is yours and what you what can you take and what can't you take, it goes to a question of power and a question of those relationships between the dominant culture and minority cultures, for want of a better term. I think it can still be instructive. I don't think it's a distraction. I think it's important, actually. I think this question of cultural appropriation you know, when we're talking about arresting power structures, what real power do we as individuals have to arrest those structures, to to end systemic racism, to stop um, black men and women being killed in the streets? This this question does lead to all those larger ones. It's only relevant to me because it actually talks about a whole complex of issues, in and of itself. I agree it's a shiny object, but it does give some people a way into understanding the deeper structural and systemic issues. Mm, mm. Lloyd, what have you made of all of this? The first headline from James's point to that authenticity is not always, you know, doesn't have to be there to create some aesthetic contribution. Um, and, and I thought that was that was very interesting for me and, and giving the example, for example, of Shakespeare in Italy. But on the other hand, you know, when I listen to Daniel, I'm sort of hearing that, well, maybe authenticity is very important if you come from a place where you have frequently been misrepresented. And if you're frequently misrepresented, then you, your starting point on authenticity is not the same. So I'd say that was a big headline for me. The, the second headline, uh, if we don't write about other people's cultures, are we then not being empathic? Is, is empathy about getting out of yourself and trying to think about other people? Yeah. Often we think we know ourselves and we think we have got emotional intelligence, but we're often wrong about ourselves. And so even when people are writing about their own cultures, how authentic are they and are they wrong? Are they always right? Uh, just because they come from from that culture. Uh, and Daniel, you sort of highlighted that a little, I think, and I'll come back to it in an interview uh, you did uh, earlier about yourself, which I'd love to come back to when we get to, to, to exploring a little bit about the principle of charity. Yeah, well, I think let's move on now. I mean, I, it, it seems to me that we've landed in a place of respectful appropriation, which is exciting for me personally, that we've really explored some of the real problems and there are some real true differences in the opinions uh, of you, Daniel, uh, between you, Daniel, and James. At the same time, a noble goal would be to move towards respectful, researched, considered appropriation that doesn't cause profound offence and where we spend a lot of our energies supporting the voices of the marginalised and try to change power structures to give them as great a platform as possible. And hopefully one day, if that manages to be achieved or we go to some way towards it, and I think we are in in the arts so much closer to that than we were five years ago 
I'm just looking at the projects that I have on my slate and who's telling them, then hopefully there'll be more um, openness to um, genuine cross-cultural dialogue, which doesn't feel like it sits within the framework of oppression and, and silencing. Lloyd, over to you. Great. Thanks, Emil. Daniel and James, what we'd like to do in this part of the podcast is really focus on the principle of charity. And, you know, as we outline at the beginning, the, a key dimension of the principle of charity is to seek the truth, not win the fight, but also to try and encourage people to talk to each other. And people, we believe, will talk to each other a lot more if they feel listened to and feel understood. And on that basis, a key dimension of the principle of charity is to not find the weakest dimension of your opponent's argument, but the strongest. And in that vein, James, I'll start with you. What do you think the three strongest points are of of Daniel's argument? Well, I'll start with seeing your culture misrepresented and seeing others speak for you. I know that if I were in that position, if I were in the member of a uh, oppressed minority group, that would really get up my nose. I mean, I would just be infuriated by seeing that. And I, my heart goes out to people who, who see that, particularly if they see uh, their culture being misrepresented. I don't think cultures always have to be misrepresented. Um, as, as you were saying earlier on, uh, Lloyd, the, the best biography is not always autobiography. But seeing my culture misrepresented by outsiders I would find that galling beyond belief. Point two would be not feeling respected, seeing people appropriate things ignorantly and in way, without, without understanding their significance. Once again, I would find that incredibly galling. And uh, thirdly, and I think this is a crucial point on which we, we all agree, we, we need to find ways for all people to be able to express themselves. Uh, I, I see sometimes people complaining about cultural appropriation and focusing on complaining about some people expressing themselves in ways that perhaps we find objectionable. I would prefer the conversation to be more about how do we find ways for members of groups that haven't had opportunities to express themselves to do so. Daniel, what's uh, if, if you're looking at, at, at James through the charity prism, and how charitable he has been to your point of view. What do you think, uh, I'm going to, I will go with omission first. What do you think he's left out? Is there any strong points you think he's left out? No, no, no. I think that's, you know, from his perspective, they, 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 they're, his, they're his points. Um, I would say going to, going to uh, you know, the, the kind of arguments that he's put today, that we're all enriched by you know, um, this engagement with other cultures where all there are positive examples, very concrete positive examples of what you might call appropriation. We might find another term for it, borrowing or um, quoting another culture, and that it doesn't always have to be disrespectful. I mean, James has been very clear and very charitable in saying, you know, what are the actual, um, there are cases of actual actual harm um, and misrepresentation. Uh, obviously, I'd, I'd, I'd very uh, closely agree with him. Um, we're all enriched um, by these positive exchanges, but you know, I go back to that point of, of when the exchange is actually is an exchange. Um, we're all enriched by by that. Um, his his points too about uh, authenticity not being a, a necessarily an aesthetic value to which we all subscribe. I think that's actually really important. 
there's nothing wrong with appropriating or creating, writing an Aboriginal character who everyone knows is inauthentic. Yeah? Okay? No one's, no, no one's harmed because black folks go, oh, that guy, that he's, clearly not, he's clearly not really uh, an, an Aboriginal character. So I think that question of authenticity, about the aesthetic value of authenticity, it's not always shared. You know, we don't commonly believe that authenticity is actually what we're after. We actually sometimes, there might be something really interesting happening in the transposition uh, in trying to interpret another culture or to borrow mm-hmm. another culture, you might create something completely new. And that is what happens in art, isn't it? You know, this kind of idea of um, cross, uh, cross-pollinating or, or German, uh, cross-pollinating uh, from another culture and creating something new. That's, that's uh, the Gertrude Stein mm-hmm. example, I think. The Picasso um, painting, I think, is a really good example of, of where, that, where that benefits everyone. Any any last uh, a third comment maybe on on a strong point from, no, from a very Francis strong point is this this idea that cultural appropriation is the is the shiny object it distracts us from the actual power imbalances and the real cost uh, to human life um, of of those imbalances I mean you can't really I, I tried to contradict him tried tried to contradict him but I do think it is a it is a window in which we through which we can observe structural inequality. Okay, fantastic, James. Uh, what what did Daniel miss out on? I'll stay with our mission. Well, I, I guess the only point that he missed that I think is essential to this debate is this is this distinction between harm and offence. Uh, I, I think that some usually a cultural appropriation is wrong when it's wrong because it's offensive, not because it's causing harm. Now, it's not to say that it doesn't sometimes cause harm. It does sometimes cause harm as when it perpetuates stereotypes and so on. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that that distinction between harm and offense is an important one to bear in mind as we reflect on these issues. James, I'll stay with you again. When you look at your own argument, when you reflect on, 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 on your book and what you've written, which part of your argument are you the least comfortable with? Which part are you? do you feel the least certain about and more ambiguous about? I think that when I wrote that book, which was now a dozen years ago, over a dozen years ago, I didn't really grasp, and this is just because of where I am, I'm a white guy from a nice, comfortable, middle-class background, about just how much perceived hard feelings there are, just how much people really just don't like to see this. And I, I don't think it's harm. I think it's offense, right? I think people are just think. I think people are feeling disrespected. I think they're, and I guess I would be, would be more sensitive to that if I were to to turn around and, and write that book again. Daniel, how about you? Which which part of your argument do you feel less certain about? I don't feel <laughs> uncertain about it at all. Um, I haven't written a book about cultural appropriation in the arts uh, like James has. Look, I mean uh, this this. I guess I ha- have hardened and I've softened over the years in relation to this question of cultural appropriation. I have found many examples where, you know, people have come to me, non-Indigenous people, and said, look, can I do this? Can I write this? Can I tell this story? And, you know, my, my advice, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago would have been, no, you just can't, just don't go there. It's, you absolutely can't. Um, you can't tell this story. Um, but now, given that the, the the kind of landscape in terms of the the arts ecology has shifted, and there is a, um, a kind of a, 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 a rebirth, I suppose, of, of first person storytelling in relation to the indigenous context here in Australia. So there are 
voices. There are um, Aboriginal voices, First Nations, Indigenous voices challenging those representations, and and so now so now we are coming to a point where maybe it's 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 possible that whitefellas will tell a respectful story and that they'll do it in in consultation with Indigenous communities and they may be allowed in. Wanting to, James, move on to, to you, when you reflect on the way you write or when you speak, are, are there ways that you think about how you can be more charitable to, to others? I always try to write in a respectful, dispassionate kind of way about the issues that I'm writing about. I try to make it a point to talk to people who have alternative points of view and to hear what they have to say. When I was working on that uh, book on cultural appropriation and when I did the um, the edited volume on cultural appropriation with my colleague Conrad Brunt, I spent a long time talking with Indigenous people. And often that was hard and awkward because, you know, people often – feel very strongly about this issue, uh, feel very passionately. And the, the, you're often dealing with people who have had a much harder time in life because of the group that they belong to. And mm. I, I guess that was the biggest thing that I learned. And I guess this is something that I've continued to learn. And, and that is that um, I need to be more aware of – just how strongly people can feel about this issue. What want to move on maybe just to one or two other issues. And, and James, to you, what triggers you personally to be less charitable? I guess any members of any group can think of any other group in ways that involve stereotypes. Mm, mm, mm. And I don't like being stereotyped any more than anybody else does. I mean, I think... Daniel would probably say, you don't know me, <laughs> right? And I want to say at the same time to other to lots of people, you, you just don't know me, right? There's things about me you don't know. And if you knew them, you probably wouldn't be saying some of the things that you're saying right now. Daniel, how about, how about you? What, what's, the, what's the trigger for you where you feel like you instant, instinctively reject without listening? Well, I mean, these, this, this issue is triggering. I find it, I find it triggering because mm. I – as, I, as I've kind of elucidated, I regard it as a kind of, it's the thin end of the wedge. It's, the perif- mm. it's on the periphery of very broader, dis- much, much broader discussions about structural inequality mm. and mm. structural violence. They, but I use this as, a, as an example for which, for which people can, it's a, it's a window to peer through. Um, and it, but Mick Dodson, uh, who, was a, who was a commissioner on the National Inquiry into the forced removal of Aboriginal children, the Stolen Generations, National Inquiry, he made this point, and that was, if you keep taking, there'll be nothing left. Mm. And it's so simple. It's just like, mm. if you keep taking from us, you mm. took our children, you took our land, you, you know, you, 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 you represented us, you took our, our image, you sold it all around the world, you made us, made us perform in human zoos, you did all these things. And the, the the last bit we have that we can hold on to, our language, our, our cultural practices, our beliefs in many cases, mm. you want them too. It's so existential. It's it's literally an existence when people take things from it's, you. It it is embodied. It is embodied, yeah. It's funny, I, I have to I have to say the one thing that struck me about uh 
the example, James, you were, you were giving about uh, the shiny light and, and this, you know, the other issues of economic class and racism, I do think, you know, I think about the sort of activism and human rights issues, uh, particularly in the West in, in, in the 70s and 80s, and how, you know, environmental issues were completely ignored. Uh, they were just seen as not relevant at all uh, because there were economic and race issues. And yet, those issues somewhat are existential. Literally, they, they can result in existence being depleted or, or being destroyed. On that note, I am going to end off and thank you both. It's, uh, it's been very enlightening. Uh, I've learned to fortune. I understand how emotional uh, this topic can be. So really want to thank you both for your intellectual, spiritual, and emotional effort. Um, and Emil, any last words from you? Yeah, just recognising how hard it can be to come onto a podcast like this, particularly, Daniel, how triggering this topic, as you've said, has been for you and really appreciate you taking the time to do this and to you, James, very much as well. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. We are at the end of an era and on the precipice of a new one. What do we keep? What do we leave behind? Hear from 16 thinkers, including Stephen Fry, Roxanne Gay, Slavoj Zizek, Walid Ali, Naomi Klein, Peter Singer, Sam Mostyn, and more. Eight conversations, eight responses in sound, one podcast to record this moment. Subscribe to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas wherever you find your podcasts and join us at The In-Between. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.